as recently as 15 years ago, it was easy to think that if democracy spread, the world would become more stable. As Iraq and Afghanistan and other countries adopted democratic forms of government, so the thinking went, they would elect moderate leaders, they would pass moderate policies, they would become more stable countries, leading to more stable regions, and ultimately a more stable world. Fast forward 15 years to the present day. As of yesterday, 10% of US representatives think we should impeach our president. Theresa May, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, announced her resignation. The United Kingdom is trying to figure out how to withdraw from the EU. And as recent EU elections show, political parties are pulling farther apart as they veer left and right. Just like political parties here in the US are pulling farther apart as they veer left and right. Don't worry right now about who's right and wrong in all this. That's not my point. It's not what I want to talk about. I just want you to see that it's no longer easy to think, as it was 15 years ago, that the spread of democratic forms of government would automatically lead to world peace and prosperity. No, in fact, we see stable democracies like the US, the UK, and the EU becoming increasingly divided. We no longer can think easily that liberal democracy together with increased education, access to birth control, and the rising standard of living will automatically solve all the problems of the world. Our hope for the future simply cannot rest on human governments. But you might ask, can we even have hope for the future? If you, like our family, listen to Praise 106.5, you've probably heard recently commercials telling you about the signs of the end times that are near, and that if you log into the correct website, you can interpret those signs correctly uh, and be well prepared for the end of the world, that Jesus will return and destroy the world. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew 24, 29 through 35, where Jesus addresses these questions directly. Do we have any grounds for hope? Are governments the ultimate power for bringing peace in the world? As we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, we're in the middle of Jesus' long discussion with his disciples about things to come. And we find ourselves this morning confronted with one of the most difficult passages in the Gospel, Matthew 24, 29 through 35. I say one of the most difficult, but as we go through this chapter in particular, Bert and I keep going back and forth arguing who has the most difficult, that none of it's easy here uh, looking ahead, and yet it is comforting. Matthew 24, 29 through 35. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is God's word. 
In this passage, Jesus reveals two truths that give us hope for the future. First, when Jesus is crowned, kingdoms shake. When Jesus is crowned, kingdoms shake. And second, when Jesus is crowned, he gathers his people. When he is crowned, he gathers his people. But before we look at these points, I'm afraid we have to do some spade work. In almost every line of our passage, Jesus refers back to various Old Testament passages. He, he, he makes these allusions back to Old Testament passages. Now, an allusion works by calling something to the mind indirectly. An allusion is referring to something, but not explicitly. This week, we watched a shark movie with our kids, and at one point, the hero was swimming near a shark, and he's saying, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Now, if you don't watch Disney films, you might not even get it, but my kids knew right away, it's, they're singing Finding Nemo, and so they, they got the illusion, and it was funny to them. You have to be able to know what's being referred to to understand an illusion. And so if we want to understand Jesus in this passage, we have to do a bit of digging. We have to know what he's alluding back to to get what he's saying. Now, for kids taking notes, after you did the best week yet of notes last week, I'm sorry to do this to you, but we have two main points which I've told you. But first, we're going to do a bit of groundwork. So maybe in my notes, I would say groundwork, pastor says things about Old Testament, and then point one and two, something along those lines. So what do we need to know to track with Jesus in this passage? Two things, really. The first is we need to remember the setting of Matthew 24. It's the final week of Jesus' life. He's arrived at Jerusalem. He goes straight to the temple, and he drives out the sellers, and he flips over the tables of the money changers. He makes a huge mess of the temple, but it's a symbolic act. It's a symbol of the judgment on the temple. Jesus declared that the temple will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left standing. Then he leaves the city, and he sits down on the Mount of Olives across the valley facing the temple. And the disciples ask at the beginning of chapter 24, remember, they say, tell us, when will these things be? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? For the disciples, this is all one event in their mind. It's all tied together. If the temple is destroyed, surely this is the end of the age. Surely then Jesus will come. Remember, Jesus talking to the disciples here, he hasn't even died yet, let alone rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. So when the disciples ask, when will you come? They don't mean, when will you go to heaven and come back to us? They mean, when are you going to come in power? When are you going to sit on the throne and take things over and put things right? When will you begin to reign? Throughout this chapter, Jesus works to untangle these things. He says, hang on there. You think this is all one event, that when the temple's destroyed, I'm going to reign in power, and the end of the world's going to happen. It's all one thing. But hang on, Jesus says. These are actually several different things. The destruction of the temple is on this near horizon, but the end of the ages is on the far horizon. If you close one eye and look at your finger, and you can go ahead and do this, kids, your fingernail and your knuckle look like they're right next to each other, but when you look down on your finger, they're several inches apart. And it's the same way with this stuff. Jesus is saying, from our point of view, disciples, it looks like this is all cropped up one thing together, but it's actually spread out over a long period of time. So we've got to keep this setting in mind. Jesus is talking about judgment on the temple and also the end of the age, but he's saying these are not the same thing. But we've also got to do some digging in the Old Testament to catch Jesus' illusion. 
The main one is in Daniel 7, which we've already read part of this morning. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees visions of four beasts coming up out of the sea. It's a series of beastly empires. And then after these four beasts, Daniel sees one like a son of man who comes to the throne of God, to whom God gives all authority and glory and a kingdom, one whose kingdom will last forever. In Daniel 7, 13 through 15, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. Notice the language of Matthew chapter 24 there. On the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So if you feel anxious and your head feels a bit alarmed, reflecting on these things, we're not alone. God's own prophet Daniel felt the same way. But notice in Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming on the clouds isn't about him descending to earth at the end of all things. It's about him coming to God's throne to be crowned king of all history. This is an enthronement text. To use Luke's language that we just read, Daniel 7 is about an ascension to the heavenly throne, not about a return to earth. After a series of beastly governments, here at last is a humane ruler who establishes a true kingdom that will bring true peace to the earth. Now, Jesus, you may know, frequently calls himself Son of Man. It's his favorite title for himself. And he alludes to this passage, Daniel 7, a number of times in the book of Matthew. Seven times, in fact. I'm not going to read all seven of those here, but, but a couple key ones look at. Matthew 16, 27 to 28. Jesus says, The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until the Son of Man, until they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Jesus isn't talking about the end of the world when he says the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. It's something that's going to happen while some of the disciples are still alive. On the other hand, in Matthew 25, 31, he said, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks here, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Here the Son of Man's coming does seem to be reflecting this very end of all things judgment. And so we see that this, the Son of Man coming, it's this thing that's extended from his ascension all the way to the final judgment. In Matthew chapter 26, 63 to 64, it's right before his crucifixion. He's being tried by the high priest and the council of the temple leaders. And the high priest says to Jesus, Tell us plainly, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus says in 26, this is something you're just about to see. From now on, you will see me on the clouds of heaven. Now, if we keep in mind that Jesus is answering the disciples' question about when the temple will be destroyed and when Jesus comes in power. And if we keep in mind that Daniel 7 is about the Son of Man taking the throne, we're ready to consider the first truth that our passage teaches us. And this truth is this. 
When Jesus is crowned, kingdoms shake. When Jesus is crowned, kingdoms shake. Jesus teaches us this in verses 29 and 30. But again, I'm afraid we have to know the Old Testament background if we want to know what Jesus is saying here. At first glance, if we don't catch the Old Testament allusions, it sounds like Jesus is talking about literal falling stars, the sun growing cold, the moon being eclipsed. But before we jump to that conclusion, let's look at three Old Testament passages. There's lots of Old Testament prophets that use this kind of language. But I just pick out three that it seems like Jesus is explicitly borrowing from. First, in Isaiah 13, Isaiah declares God's judgment on Babylon. In verse 10, Isaiah says almost the exact same thing as Jesus about heavenly lights being darkened. But notice this is judgment on Babylon, not the physical creation being undone. Hear are the words of Isaiah. He says, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. And I will punish this land for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. In Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah talks about Judah's punishment and Judah being sent into exile in Babylon, and he uses the same imagery. He says, Behold, God comes up like clouds, his chariots like whirlwinds. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, into the heavens, and they had no light. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruin before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Finally, in Joel 2, all of this is spelled out clearly. And notice as I read this passage from Joel 2, all the allusions that Jesus picks up in Matthew 24, the trumpet announcing the day of the Lord, the darkness, and the arrival of God. But notice in Joel, this darkness is explicitly an invading army coming on the land that sets fires everywhere it goes and is followed by smoke. This is Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 10. Joel says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is, a, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Fire devours before them, and behind them them a flame burns. The land is like a garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. This language of the sun and the moon and the stars darkening is regularly used by prophets in the Old Testament. But it's part of rhetoric declaring judgment on a city or nation within history. It doesn't mean everything is getting unmade. Israel went into exile in Babylon, but there's still stars in the sky. Babylon was conquered by Persia, but we still see the sun. It's part of language that we use similarly saying it's an earth-shattering event. 
We mean this is something of massive historical significance, but it doesn't mean that the Earth literally splits apart. What they seem to be talking about in these is that there's going to be darkness because the smoke of cities being burned and of war camps will cloud out the sun. What is Jesus telling us here then? If we follow along in our Bibles, if you look at Matthew 24, we can track the logic of the passage pretty clearly. In verse 3, the disciples ask, when will the temple be destroyed and what are the signs of the end of the age? In verse 24, 36 that we'll look at next week, Jesus says no one knows when the end of the age will be, not even the Son, only the Father. So I'm not going to give you signs about that because no one knows. <coughs> Excuse me. He says in a moment, uh, later in the passage that, that when he comes, it's unexpected. It's like a thief in the night that no one knows. But, Jesus says, there are clear signs that the destruction of the temple is at hand. In verse 16, he says, those who are in Judah should flee to the hills when they see the abomination that brings desolation standing in the holy place. In verse 22, he says, there'll be a period of tribulation, but it will be cut short. And then in verse 29, he says, immediately after this time of tribulation, then the sun and the moon and the stars will be darkened and the heavens will be shaken, the powers in heaven. Now, again, I want to say this is symbolic of a nation being judged. What nation is being judged? It's not Babylon this time. It's not Egypt. It's God's own people. It's Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem that is being judged here. Just like in Joel, the sun and moon will be darkened. Their stars will withdraw their shining. But just like in Joel, this is because of fire and smoke following the Roman armies. When Jesus is crowned, kingdoms shake, starting with God's own people. In verse 30, Jesus says this happens as a sign. Now, I readily admit the meaning of verse 30 has been discussed throughout church history. Some have thought that a literal sign, perhaps a cross, would appear in the sky. So, for example, Constantine famously saw a, a cross in the heavens before uh, fighting a war and became a Christian afterwards. But the actual word order in Greek is not then a sign will appear in heaven, but then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. That is to say, then a sign will appear that the Son of Man has come on clouds to heaven, just like Daniel 7 prophesied, that this prophecy has been fulfilled. So what is this sign that the Son of Man has been enthroned in heaven, that he has been crowned? Well, the sign's right here in our passage. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. Either the temple will stand, and Jesus will be shown to have been a false prophet, or the temple will be destroyed, as Jesus says, within the generation that he's speaking to, and Jesus will be vindicated. It will be proven that Jesus is who he said he was, or is, that all his claims were true. So when the temple, when this happens, when the skies are darkened, when the temple is burned, when the city of Jerusalem is burned, this is the sign that the Son of Man has been crowned in heaven. But this language of Jesus here in this passage is actually fulfilled even sooner than the destruction of the temple. Remember in Matthew 26, Jesus answers the high priest from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then both the Jewish council and the Roman government give Jesus an unjust death sentence. 
And when Jesus is crucified in Matthew 27, we read, from noon there was darkness in the land until 3 p.m. The sun and the moon and the stars don't shine. And behold, the curtain of the temple is torn open. The presence of God leaves the temple. It's judged. And the earth shook and rocks were split. And when the Roman centurions, the pagans who were there with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was a son of God. Other kings and Caesars and emperors are crowned with pomp and circumstance. But Jesus comes in great glory and power in a horrifying death on the cross for his people. Yet even the Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross recognize this glory, that this death was unlike any other person they had put to death. Remember, these centurions, this was their full-time job, crucifying people. They did this day in, day out. And yet something different is happening here. They say, this is not like the other people we put to death. Then after his resurrection in Matthew 28, Jesus comes to the disciples. And again, using the language of Daniel chapter 7, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This has been fulfilled. I have been crowned. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's saying the end of the age is still coming, but I will be with you. I am the king now who rules through you, my people. At, death, at his death, Jesus is judged. He is judged by God for the sins of his people, but he's also judged by the Jewish and Roman leaders. And these peoples, the nation's unjust judgment actually turns around and becomes a judgment on their own governments. We look at this with retrospect and we say, a government that can put Jesus to death, Pilate who can just wash his hands and say, go for it, this is not a good government. This is an unjust government. This is a beastly empire. In judging Jesus, they judge themselves. And when the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70, Jesus is vindicated as God's promised Messiah. He is the king who brings true peace. His prophecy about the temple is fulfilled, and this is a sign to all people that he has, in fact, been crowned king and enthroned in heaven. If you're on the fence about Jesus this morning, I'm, I'm challenging you directly. Jesus said beforehand, the temple's going to be destroyed. And it came to pass. That's, that's Babe Ruth pointing to the outfield and calling a home run. I mean, this is saying, this is what's going to happen, and it happens. It's something you have to deal with. You have to reckon with one way or another. When Jesus is crowned as God's king, though, it doesn't only put a question mark next to Jewish and Roman governments. It puts a question mark next to every government. No Congress or king can again claim to be an absolute authority. The true king and judge has been enthroned. No government then can claim our total allegiance. Only the true king can ask for that. When Jesus is crowned, all kingdoms shake. At a practical level, this means it's very concerning when Christians get too caught up in any political party. Again, my point is not to say this party or that party, but to say anytime we get too caught up in politics, it's, uh, to use Jesus' word, an abomination that brings desolation. It's mixing together the kingdom of God and earthly politics. Our local governments, we should support those. We should work for the good of our community. We can be part 
of government and voting as Christians, but that's not our ultimate hope. There's something deeply wrong when we look around and see people losing their basic civility in their allegiance to political parties or governments. Yesterday, we were at the Farmer's Day Parade, and a candidate for county office was in the parade. And when they passed by, the people standing behind us started saying loudly and very crassly, I can't believe this no good blankety blank would even show up in town on this parade. Again, the point's not to say this party or that party's better, but to question what sort of hope do people have when they're cussing loudly on the street about politicians walking by? It's a bizarre world we live in when people swear their allegiance to one party or another rather than to Christ Jesus, the true king. The point is Jesus has been crowned king, and so all of our politics are relativized. It can still be a temporal good, but it's relativized. Jesus is the true king. Jesus has been crowned and every kingdom will shake. True hope is not found in any human government. Human governments, as we've seen throughout 20th century history, can become a beastly empire in the blink of an eye and start devouring their own citizens. How many revolutions promised freedom for its citizens and then started putting them to death within years? True hope is found only in the Son of Man who has been given all authority and power. True hope is in the true judge who is enthroned. The temple has been destroyed as a sign of this, and one day we will stand accountable to this judge. With this, then, we come to our second truth. When Jesus is crowned, he gathers his people. When Jesus is crowned, he gathers his people. This earth-shattering, sky-darkening truth that Jesus sits on his throne as the true king and judge of all the earth leads to two opposite responses. Either we get a glimpse of this this morning, and it's terrifying. It's frightening to even reflect on these things. Or it's comforting to look and see our true king before the throne of God, to see him judged for us and sitting crowned in heaven. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, All tribes on earth will see this sign. They will see the Son of Man crowned with power and glory, and they will mourn. Jesus predicted before his generation had even passed away, these things would happen. When Jesus said this, the temple leaders and the Romans were buddy-buddy. There was no conflict between them. There was no reason to think the destruction of the temple was in the near future. But when it happens, it proves that Jesus was right all along. His word is fulfilled. And all people will one day see Jesus on the throne face to face with their own eyes. And when we see this, we will mourn. In Matthew, there's two types of mourning. You can mourn over your own sins and your brokenness with godly sorrow. And this is, in fact, a good thing. uh, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This godly mourning is a spiritual discipline. It prepares us for the promised comfort when one day Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. But for those who don't mourn for their sin and brokenness now, who don't find in Jesus alone true comfort and hope, one day there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth at the just judgment the just final judgment of the Son of Man. But for those who mourn in this life and are hated for Jesus' namesake, there's great comfort in this passage. 
When Jesus is crowned, he gathers his people. When a king of old was crowned, you can imagine messengers being sent throughout the land, blowing trumpets and calling out in every village, hear ye, hear ye, Henry II or whoever is being crowned as the new king. And we see the same image in verse 31. Jesus is crowned and his messengers are sent throughout the world with trumpet blasts to assemble his people. In verse 31, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from the end, one end of heaven to the other. Jesus' people here are called his elect as they are several times in Matthew 24. This too is intended to bring comfort. Although we are battered by trial and tribulation, our hope is not in our own ability to stand firm in difficult circumstances. It's not, our hope is not in our own ability to be faithful. Our hope is in the faithfulness of Jesus who holds us, who has chosen us, who calls us his elect, and who gathers us to him. Jesus is crowned king, and he is gathering his people from the ends of the earth. There's great comfort to know that we are the ones being gathered. If we track with Jesus' allusions throughout the Old Testament, it seems to me that the message of our passage is clear. First, when Jesus is crowned, kingdoms shake. All politics get shaken. The destruction of the temple is the climactic act of God's just judgment. And it's a sign that Jesus indeed sits on the heavenly throne. But if God's own chosen people, Israel, and his own temple face judgment, then surely every nation in the world stands accountable to God. Every king and government will one day be judged by his just standard. But the destruction of the temple is also the symbol of a new beginning. Jesus is crowned and given rule and authority over all things, as Daniel 7.14 declared. The temple, then, is no longer the way to access God. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.18, through Christ we have access in one spirit to the Father. And again in chapter 3, Paul says that God has realized his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith to him. As we've sung, before the throne of God above, we have a great high priest who brings us to God, who gives us access to God. When Jesus is crowned, he gathers his people and he brings them into fellowship with God. So where do you stand this morning? Is talk of trumpets and the Son of Man enthroned with power and glory, of darkening of stars in the heavens frightening or a disturbing image? Or is it a comfort to know that the true king has been crowned and rules above all things? Do you mourn with godly sorrow at sin and brokenness so that one day your tears will be wiped away? Or will you one day mourn when you see the Son of God face to face on his throne in heaven? The temple has been destroyed, just as Jesus said it would. A sign has been given that the Son of Man is seated on his throne with power and glory. Even if heaven and earth pass away, Jesus says, his words will stand firm. And yet, the only access we now have to God is through Jesus, not through the temple. How do you respond this morning?
Lord Jesus, you are our true king. You are the true hope for peace in this world. You are the true hope for comfort to those who mourn. We look around us and we do mourn a broken world. We mourn political structures that exploit their people. We mourn leaders of countries who oppress Christians who seek to follow your name, who oppress their people, who hold their people in bondage and even uh, to the point of starvation. We mourn the brokenness of this world. And yet with faith and hope, we look on your throne. We look to you, the king of all history, and we trust that you are bringing all things to fruition in your perfect plan. And so today, we, your people, gathered here together, ask for your comfort as we mourn with godly sorrow our sins and our brokenness. We ask that you, the true king, would bring peace to, the, to our world. We ask that you would come quickly and put things right again. I ask for those who maybe hear this challenge as frightening words, to think about you enthroned and one day judging them scares them, that they would see that you have already been judged on our behalf, and so freedom can be found only in you as we come to your throne clothed in your righteousness. I ask this thing, these things because we have boldness to enter into the throne room in prayer by your own work and by the power of your spirit. Amen. This morning, our, our last hymn, hymn 196, Come Thou